Family and friends of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum want her back. She was on her way home from a friend's house last Friday when she disappeared from the small town of McCleary, Washington. The state patrol is scanning the ground by air. Searchers are combing the town on horseback and checking out nearby trails. This was an evil human being that saw my child and for whatever reason thought they had a right to take her. Melissa Baum's daughter, Lindsay, disappeared on June 26, 2009 just shy of her 11th birthday. FBI agents teamed up with local investigators to fan through McClary and find something that leads back to Lindsay Baum. I'm here today to share with you that we brought Lindsay home. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. There are no words. The fact is a monster stole my 10-year-old little girl and they murdered her and they dumped her like trash in the woods. So my fight now has turned from looking for my daughter to finding who killed her. I urge anyone that has any information, any knowledge of any kind to please come forward. We need, we need justice. Um, the people who did this to Lindsay deserve to be punished. And the children still out there, your children deserve to be safe. And as long as we allow monsters like this on our streets, none of our children are safe. This is Truth in the Shadow. Welcome to Episode 6 of our series investigating the murder of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum. If you haven't heard the prior five episodes, we'd strongly suggest you go back and start from the beginning. I'm joined by my co-host, Tracy Isaac. Hello, Tracy. Hey, Peggy. I uh, want to personally apologize for how long it's taken us to get this episode on the air. It is absolutely not Peggy's fault. It is the fault of internet scammers. Um, I've been working on a show for Hulu, and it's about internet scammers, and it has kept me very busy because scammers, I guess, are time-consuming. Well, I'm super excited to see your episode on Hulu. In this episode... We have a massive update for you on the Paul Beaker sexual assault case and an interview with Leah Griffin, who's running for state representative and was involved in the legislation behind the sexual assault kits that closed the case for Paul Beaker, and an update on Lindsay's case. We at the moment have so much information about Paul Beaker and related to this case, and it's kind of unwieldy. And that's kind of one of the reasons why it's been difficult to write this episode. So we actually have kind of broken it down and are just dealing with trial-related information for this episode. And then moving forward, we are hoping to cover the other information that we've got. Let's start with the trial that took place on Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. Yeah, so this was for some reason held at a former nuclear plant called Satsop. S-A-T-S-O-P, which is just outside of Elma in Grays Harbor County. And uh, Peggy, I think you know a little bit about that place. Like, what is the story there? Ah, uh, yes. The nuclear embarrassment of Grays Harbor. There's no radiation here. The reactor core was never fueled. When it tanked in 1983 due to lack of funding, the port of Grays Harbor took over the site, and now it is rented out for movies. I believe there was a couple Transformers movies that were filmed here. 
It's also open to the public to walk around, which is something that Tracy and I did during the trial. And if you are a person in administration in Graves Harbor County, apparently you can also do things like make a courtroom there, which is where Paul Beaker's trial was held, and which is to say that it was in a small administrative building on a a would-be nuclear plant with half-built silos kind of looming over it. And I'm sure there's a metaphor in there. I just don't know what it is. Unknown, looming, and creepy. This was my first trial I attended in person, and the range of emotions that I felt that cropped up were surprising. We weren't allowed to record audio or visual, so we had to rely on our note-taking. And when I went back to read over what I wrote, one thing stuck out in particular, and I had written it several times. Once while the survivor was being cross-examined by the defense, and again when Paul testified, this is why rapes aren't reported. Beaker basically pled not guilty to the charges, which is, you know, I guess to be expected. I was actually waiting for some big bomb to drop in terms of the DNA collection because Beaker's lawyer is actually known for teaching courses on DNA collection and sexual assault kit processing. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And they did also, if you noticed, kind of go after the nurse who performed the sexual assault kid. Yeah. However, the defense also somehow succeeded in getting that nurse to say that the victim never told her, the nurse, that she'd been raped. Apparently, this was an attempt to bolster their consensual sexual encounter argument. Yeah. So it turned out that they went after the nurse, not about DNA collection, which is what I was sort of like you know, wonkily expecting was going to happen. But to make the case that the victim never mentioned the word rape while she was having the sexual assault kit performed, it's kind of strange to me because if the argument is that this was a consensual encounter, are we also supposed to believe that the victim then had a consensual sexual encounter, which was at around 7 p.m., then went to multiple hospitals until she actually landed at one where she could have a kit performed, and then she actually sat at that hospital for until about 3 a.m. in the morning, waiting for, I believe, that nurse to arrive. Just to be clear, we're saying that she had a consensual sexual encounter and then decided to sit around for almost 12 hours in her dirty clothing in order to, I don't know what the point of that would be. One nurse to do any sexual assault kits that comes in for an entire county. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, the big question was whether Paul Beaker would testify at his trial and dun dun dun, he did. It surprised me too that he was willing to testify on his own behalf. That's not a brilliant move. So the thrust of his testimony was that it was consensual. Basically, he claims he likes coffee. He likes coffee a lot. So according to Beaker, he used to go by the coffee stand where the victim worked, and he claims that while he was there, he and the victim would flirt. The day in question, according to Paul, the victim invited him to meet up with her later, and once he did, to hear poor Paul tell it, she forced her tiny self upon him. Yeah, so basically, the victim worked at a coffee shop, Paul likes coffee. Paul went to the coffee shop, flirted with the victim. The victim invited him out for a little uh, whatever. And then she decided to accuse him of rape without specifying who raped her. 
then waiting roughly, what was it, 17 years until it comes to fruition and then allowing this to become a thing that affects her her marriage while she goes to court. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, something that really stuck out to me in this little part was that Paul said when he met her, he introduced himself as Ken. Oh, he called himself Ken. I did not even know that. He did. He said on that day, he parked across the street and walked over because he didn't want to take his crummy Geo Metro through the stand, which just seems odd to me because it's a freaking drive through coffee stand that seems more dangerous. Let me clarify something that you're saying there. So he said on this particular night, he parked his car across the street or he always parked his car across the street because if he likes coffee that much... Polly testified that he and his wife at the time had driven through the coffee stand on their way to their search and rescue group that met monthly. But on this particular night, he parked across the street. He said something about his Geo Metro being hard to drive because it was a manual transmission, which was weird because later the prosecution came back and asked him how familiar he was with driving a manual, and he says, well, it's pretty easy to do when you've been driving one for 10 years. So that's kind of an odd statement. I've driven standard and I don't think it makes really any difference and when you're dealing with a coffee stand. The only thing I could see making a difference is if the car is big or small. And we've seen that parking lot. It's the parking lot of a grocery store and it's pretty big. I would think it would be more dangerous to get out of your car and try to walk up than drive his Geo Metro through. He doesn't want her to see his car because this car is going to be part of this later assault. I'd be interested to speak to the victim and see whether she remembers that he wasn't in a car and if she remembered meeting his wife before. You know, were he and his wife in a different car? The thing about that Geo Metro that really stands out is that it really doesn't stand out. It's the perfect car for Mr. Cellophane, right? What Paul basically says is they had this interaction... Did she sort of lure him or for, for a sexual encounter or something like that? Yeah, Paul stated that the victim was flirting with him and that men have needs. And I guess his wife and him had had issues with their intimate life uh, since their second child was born. Yeah, it's very, very sad, actually. He and his wife had just had a child. This made it um, very sad for Paul. He wasn't getting any at home. So needless to say, he went out and got him some strange, according to him. I just imagine his attorney inwardly cringing as Paul opens his mouth to speak and carries on. One of the things that Paul had said was that she didn't dress like she was 17. Uh, She didn't dress for her age. Uh, So they kind of got together. They met up with their cars. They went into her car and then they presumably had consensual sex in the back of the car. But according to Paul, it was consensual kinky sex where she was asking to be tied up and whatnot. Correct? Is that more or less what the story is? That was Paul's testimony. He said that she wanted to meet him at the Elma Hicklin firehouse that was no longer in service. And he went there and waited for her and parked on the side of the building. The fire station is just down the street from her house. And according to Paul... They agreed to meet just after seven. Now, the interesting thing about the firehouse from the victim's statement way back when she originally uh, reported this in 2003 is that she was taken from her house to a secondary location 
where um, the assault took place, according to the victim, and then she was taken to a third location, which turned out to be the firehouse, and which is the location from which she managed to drive home. So Paul is taking that last location and making it where they had consensual sex together. And just by the way, if I were trying to sort of have consensual sex without drawing attention to myself in a small town with 1,200 people, I would probably not do it at a firehouse that literally sits in the middle of a field with nothing else around it. Because you see, Paul, we actually have gone to the firehouse. And there is literally, like, if I'm there having an affair, let me tell you, everybody is going to tell my spouse, because my car, my my very unattractive Geo Metro, is going to be visible next to the firehouse. <laughs> Which that road is a very well-traveled road. Like, you're not going to hide from anybody being on that route. He's He is just attended to any location that they could possibly have him on. That's it. He's just distancing himself from the fact that he was at her house. The fact that Paul's go-to was to claim that this was consensual goes to show that victim blaming is alive and well to this day, which is something we also discussed with Leah Griffin. Yeah, this victim blaming really does seem to be quite prevalent we wanted to reach out to somebody who could speak to both, you know, the role of victim blaming, but the greater context in which uh, sexual assault is investigated in Washington state. Um, so the person we reached out to was somebody named Leah Griffin, who is a librarian and who's currently running for state representative for the 34th district. Uh, she was somebody who was behind a lot of the um, legislation around sexual assault and how it's handled in Washington state. Yeah, Leah was the activist behind the sexual assault protocols for Washington state, and she was also behind the acquisition of funding to end the backlog of sexual assault kits that hadn't been tested, which was over 10,000 kits. Which basically means that all of those sexual assault kits have not been processed, no DNA has been extracted from those kits, and therefore no profiles can have been uploaded that can be compared and contrasted with the existing DNA database of the state. There can be serial offenders out there who basically are not recognized because basically the profiles have not yet been uploaded. To find out more about this, we reached out to Leah, and here's that interview now. So my name is Leah Griffin, and I am a school librarian as my day job. And then in 2014, I was raped by a man in my neighborhood. And I did everything that I thought that I was supposed to do. I went to the closest emergency room. Uh, they shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't do rape kits here. So I ended up finding another hospital hours later that was equipped to provide sexual assault kits with a forensic nurse. And I did get a rape kit done and uh, tried to file a police report, but it was really challenging. The police uh, wanted to meet me at a McDonald's to take my report. So I went to the local precinct and waited for hours. Uh, two hours later, police finally came out to take my report and started to interview me in the public lobby in front of a man complaining about a package theft. They were dismissive, and then eventually the police refused to even test my rape kit or, or do a thorough investigation. 
the prosecutors were victim blaming and ended up threatening me if I continued to, to push for justice. The entire system was broken. And I thought, you know, if I can navigate this, then then nobody can. So I started reaching out to every lawmaker in the state of Washington that I thought could make a difference, hundreds of emails. The first person to respond to me was Senator Patty Murray. She found out through a Government Accountability Office report that only one in five hospitals in the United States were fully equipped to help survivors of sexual assault. We've fought for that for eight years. I flew out to D.C. a couple of times. I lobbied members of Congress, ended up getting tripartisan co-sponsorship because I got Lisa Murkowski and Bernie Sanders on the same bill. And we worked on that bill for years and years. And then just this last March, uh, we passed it as part of the Violence Against Women Act. We got uh, national standards of care. We got uh, maps identifying where services are available in every state and appropriate $150 million to train and pay sexual assault nurse examiners around the country. Uh, the other person that got in touch with me was Representative Tina Orwall from Des Moines. Uh, Tina was concerned about the, the 11,000 untested rape kits in Washington state. So in 2015, we passed a bill together, House Bill 1068, that established the Sexual Assault Forensic Examination Working Group. And for the last eight years, we've been passing legislation to reform how our systems deal with sexual assault. We mandated that rape, all rape kits are in Washington are tested. By the end of this year, we'll have tested all 11,000 untested rape kits in Washington. Uh, we redefined what constitutes a rape kit to include uh, blood and urine, which otherwise had been, had been discarded. Uh, and we got trauma-informed training for investigators and hospital protocols, and we've just been passing bills to improve systems. Could you tell us a little bit more about what CODIS is and how it works? Yeah. So CODIS is a database that uh, stores offender DNA samples. Uh, so in Washington state, the DNA of a felony and some misdemeanor sexually motivated offenses uh, are kept so that when there is another match, uh, that perpetrator can be identified. Uh, some states actually have DNA collection upon felony arrest, uh, but here in Washington, in order to be included in the CODIS database, you have to be convicted of a felony or a sexually motivated misdemeanor. What is the process that a rape kit goes through like basically you're currently trying to get all these rape kits tested and uploaded to CODIS but could you tell us just what the steps are that that uh, a kit goes through the police will collect the sexual assault kit from the hospital and then they transfer it to the state patrol and you know we're the kits had been getting stuck was at the individual police precincts. They were never being forwarded along to state patrol as part of an investigation. So now the law is that every single rape kit has to be forwarded to the state patrol. Once it goes to the state patrol, there are a couple of local in-house labs. Uh, some of the the older kits that are being tested are being sent out to other private labs around the country. Uh, and then when those results come in, it gets sent back to the state patrol and then the individual precincts. 
So State Patrol at that point would then load the profile into CODIS, is that correct? Yes. I was actually looking at the State Patrol website, and it looks as though they're saying there's 62% in terms of the rape kits being uploaded. Is that Does that seem about accurate? Um, I mean, the profile's being uploaded, not the rape kits, sorry. Yeah. Um, that does seem about accurate. They had, they've been doing this work in three phases. So the first phase is the outsourcing of the, the older kits, and they're 99% done with that process. So the three vendor labs have tested 9,135 kits. Yeah. Uh, of all of the, the rape kits, uh, the historical backlog, 89% of them have been tested. And then 67% of them have been uh, uploaded into CODIS and, and reviewed. Oh, so we still got a little bit of work to do. Uh, of those 67% that have been reviewed and uploaded into CODIS, uh, it's resulted in 952 hits to individuals and 198 hits to other cases, meaning that we've identified serial predation. Earlier, you had stated that the legislation regarding the sexual assault kits being uploaded and the DNA being uploaded to CODIS uh, would be a required piece to law enforcement. Why wouldn't they want to do that anyway? There were a variety of reasons. Uh, and I, I think the a pretty common one was a lot of times the police's thought was that if the alleged perpetrator was a known person, then it it didn't behoove them in their investigation to send in the, the rape kit for testing. Uh, our response to that, of course, is that sexual predation is usually not a, a single incident. Uh, these perpetrators offend multiple times. So by not sending in the rape kits, they were missing the opportunity to connect them to other cases and to identify serial perpetrators. Uh, but I believe that that's the most common reason that the police didn't turn the, the kits in. So if I, for example, was assaulted and I knew who assaulted me, it was a date rape, they were not sending in a rape kit from me because they were like, well, we know who did it, but in not doing so, there's no way of showing whether the person who date raped me hasn't done it else, hasn't done any other kinds of assaults anywhere, date rape or otherwise. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Okay. How do you convict someone without a sexual assault kit? Clearly they don't convict, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, part of the, the problem here is that nationally, 0.5% uh, of rapes result in a perpetrator spending a single day in jail. So traditionally, rape is not prosecuted uh, on the same level as other violent crimes. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Leah later. In the meantime, very much food for thought given what we're discussing with the Beaker case. This is why rapes are not reported. That implication that the survivor asked for it or that he or she was lying about the entire event. Yeah, and watching what the victim was put through during the Beaker trial, I can see why some people don't even want to pursue charges. And to be clear, the victim in the Beaker case was as close to being the perfect victim as possible. She was young, pretty, blonde, religious. You know, if this person can be accused of turning a consensual encounter into a rape accusation, then basically the rest of us is screwed. 
I'm a survivor of sexual abuse stemming from my childhood as well as being raped in my adulthood. And while I was listening to the survivor testimony, I began subconsciously evaluating myself. The assaults I incurred, they weren't as comparatively violent as this case, but that residual effect, it's been something I've struggled with my entire life. Yeah, I was only assaulted once, and it was by a woman, and at the time, being a lesbian was enough to convince me not to bother with the cops. Also, it was a date rape, and I literally wasn't 100% clear on what had even happened. I think I was having some kind of PTSD. Did you report your assaults? Uh, that's a yes and no. I never reported my assaults from adulthood. I did report my childhood sexual abuse, but was told that the statute of limitations had expired. And really, it was my word against his. Statutes of limitations need to be changed across the board, but specifically when it comes to children. I mean, a child could literally be growing up during the 10-year statute of limitations period, and not even of age when it passes which is just absolutely unfair. One thing I think we internalize as survivors is this two-pronged belief that, number one, no one will ever believe you, and number two, that the abuser will come back and kill us or hurt our families or kill our families. I think that fear is what roots us into secrecy with an inadvertent consequence that the perpetrator gets to go on and abuse more victims. So now add some guilt and we have a trauma response. How did it affect you emotionally? I was listening to the incredible strength of the victim's testimony, and I was feeling guilty for never having that same strength. I felt flushed from anger listening to the defense try to discredit her testimony, and I felt rage listening to Paul Beaker say things like, it was her idea to be kinky. And I thought, if, if the jury finds him not guilty, I think my head will explode. And it's just going to confirm everything I've ever thought about reporting sexual assaults. No one will believe you. Yeah, and even though the victim was excellent on the witness stand and she was strong and never wavered in her facts, there's always this niggling concern that, you know, you just don't know what's going on in the minds of jurors. The defense attorney stated in closing arguments to the jury that he'd asked they take all the emotion out of their decision. And while I understand why he stated that, even though to his point DNA doesn't lie, I thought, how the fuck do you take emotion out of deliberate cruelty inflicted on another human being? It wasn't just a physical act that lasted for a certain amount of time. The residual effect emotionally and psychologically lingers and eventually it decides your perception on life. To a certain degree, I can understand why the attorney wanted emotions taken out of the equation because, listen, when I was listening to the victim's testimony, she was very emotional and the emotion that she was expressing was anger. And I, in turn, felt very angry on her behalf. And it sort of did make me believe what she was saying more than if I wasn't emotionally engaged. I'm not going to lie, you know. I watched the victim's family closely during the proceedings, and the thing that stood out the most for me was the support that she had. Her husband was holding her hand in his lap and being her rock, and as the proceedings carried on, his body posture began to change. His face flushed with anger, and tears came to his eyes, and at one point, he let go of her hand and was holding onto her leg like he was going to fly out of the seat if he didn't ground to her. She was showing her strength for his resolve to not react outwardly, which must have taken everything in his being. 
Yeah, and the victim's husband wasn't the only one showing restraint. When her dad was heading to the witness stand, he had to actually pass right by Beaker, and Beaker could be visibly seen to flinch. Because the victim's dad is a big fella, and Beaker only likes to take on women under five feet tall. And of course, Melissa Baum was there also watching proceedings, and it was very interesting to see her interacting with the victim's family in this case, and the victim herself. And unbeknownst to us, the victim's family has actually been listening to the podcast. I was so happy they approved. Me too. I can't think of an audience I'm more excited to hear about. We love all of our audience, of course, and we hope we are bringing you the content you want to hear. One of the things Peggy and I talked about when we started this podcast was trying to do as deep a dive as possible and not just stick to the case itself. Which means not only talking about Lindsay, but also trying to see things in a greater perspective, which really means digging into Grays Harbor itself and the people who live there. And also looking at the state of sexual assault investigations in our area. In the upcoming segment of the interview we did with Leah Griffin, we asked her about the Beaker case and how it fit into the greater context of the work she's doing. Are you aware of the Paul Beaker case, the rape that he committed in 2003, and they, through genealogy, were able to identify him? I think so, yes. Okay. So the question I have is this. Um, so far, as far as we know, there have been no other hits in CODIS with his profile. However, given that there's still a sizable percentage that have not been uploaded, it just seems very unlikely that some would, somebody would pull off a fairly well-executed rape in 2003 and just never do it again. Um, so what are the chances that his DNA is in there but is, has not yet been uploaded? I mean, I think the chances are that we've still got almost 33% of, of rape kits to upload. And uh, is there a chance that, that his, his profile is in there? Absolutely. Is there a chance that it isn't? Yeah. It's really hard to speculate. But at this point, there are still enough uh, DNA profiles to be reviewed that it's entirely possible. So the victim in that case, in 2003, she was kidnapped from her home, uh, raped, and then uh, left at a secondary location in her car with her hands uh, zip-tied. She managed to drive herself back to her house and arrived at around 7 o'clock. She then was taken to the McCleary Hospital, which didn't have um, the capacity to do a rape kit. So they moved her to a different hospital where she literally sat around until 3 a.m. in the morning because they didn't want to continue until they had a counselor available for her, until she basically had to have an absolute fit and say, I'm fucking leaving now, and they, they let it go. But she literally sat around until 3 a.m. in the morning waiting for somebody after having been raped, which sounds just, I mean, I can't even imagine that. How common is that? Very. Uh... That was my experience. Uh, even at the second hospital that I went to, I, I arrived around midnight and I was at the hospital for a total of 10 hours. Uh, in doing the, the work that I've done, I've heard from survivors all over the country who have gone to emergency rooms, uh, sometimes as many as three different emergency rooms looking for uh, 
a hospital that can treat them. Uh, we found that there were survivors in the state of Alaska who had to take two airplane rides in the clothes they were raped in without showering in order to get to Anchorage, uh, in order to receive an, a rape kit from the northern villages. Uh, we know of survivors in Texas who are driving 300 miles in order to access sexual assault services. Uh, so this is extremely common. Uh, here in Washington state, we did pass a law a couple of years ago that said that the, the hospital has to uh, inform survivors of the, the wait time within two hours of their arrival, which seems like a, a ludicrous amount of time, but that's just something that we did to make sure that uh, survivors weren't waiting five, six, seven hours in the emergency room without anyone even talking to them. The waits and the short staffing at hospitals and the lack of sane nurses is a crisis level problem nationwide. That's part of why passing our, uh, our Survivors Access to Supportive Care Act is so huge because it provides funding in order to start to address the, the lack of trained sane nurses around the country. What kinds of uh, resources are there in Washington state or federally for that matter in terms of uh, forensic genealogy? I know that they did get some grant funding through the AG's office to do some genetic genealogy and have successfully uh, deployed that for at least one case that I, that I know of. I know one of the differences between DNA for CODIS and DNA for genealogy research is the amount of markers, and you can't interchange those two. Is there any issue in terms of funding for labs in Washington State? Like, is that in any way part of the reason why they're having difficulty processing this DNA? Um, right now, we're not having difficulty processing the DNA. Um, they, the the backlog had was a choice. It wasn't a it wasn't a backlog. It wasn't like they were going to get to them at some point. Uh, it was a choice. And now we have gotten funding through uh, some SACI grants, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative from the federal government. And we also appropriated uh, $13 million uh, a couple of years ago through the state legislature to finish up the backlog and to maintain the testing. We were able to hire new lab technicians uh, and renovate the lab to be more efficient. So as we look to the future, we're in really good shape. We passed the average amount of time that it was taking to test uh, a kit uh, was 14 months, which if you can imagine waiting 14 months after your assault for just the results of the kit, that is obscene. Uh, we did pass a law a couple of years ago that mandated that kits now be tested within six weeks. And we are well on our way to, uh, to meeting that goal. I think it's really interesting to hear you say that it was a choice. The law enforcement people that we've spoken to has said that it was a funding issue. So I'm surprised and horrified. Yeah, that's, I, I believe it was a choice. Uh, if they truly didn't have the funding to test every kit, they certainly didn't ask for it. Uh, so at, at some point there has to be some accountability for what they tried to do and what they let fall by the wayside because it wasn't a priority. What was the outcome in your own case? Did anybody ever end up going to court about that? 
I did win a sexual assault protection order. Uh, so I was able to prove to the judge more likely than not that uh, rape had occurred. Uh, but the King County prosecutors declined to file charges in my case, despite there being uh, drugs found in my system that I didn't knowingly take. And despite having internal injuries that required stitches, they did not think that that was enough evidence to file charges. So what needs to be done to like basically start forcing prosecutors to pursue these cases? I think that there's a lot of education that needs to be done with prosecutors and with judges. There are a lot of rape myths that prosecutors and judges still believe. Uh, there is a lot of victim blaming that takes place in those offices. Since I was uh, basically told, you know, quote, <laughs> they told me, uh, your injuries don't matter because he'll just say you wanted rough sex. That's what the prosecutor's office told me. So we need prosecutors who are willing to, one, educate juries on how these crimes manifest, uh, learn about trauma and the, the ways that trauma manifests differently in every person. Uh, there's the idea of a perfect victim doesn't exist. So being able to, to see how people react and to know that whether or not they're hysterical or, or stoic is not an indication of their, their veracity. Yeah. I mean, even in the Beaker case, like he literally tried the, she wanted rough, rough sex thing. And we're like, mm -hmm. dude, really? Mm-hmm. The defense attorney really tried to attack the victim because the victim didn't remember her dad being in the room at the hospital, which is ridiculous because we're talking about trauma brain here. Trauma brain has a whole different set of rules in neurology that's happening. Yeah, the neurobiology of trauma is really complex and a lot of people just in the culture don't know about that. A lot of people don't that that work as police and prosecutors and judges don't understand that. And to know that often uh, linear time fragments when people are going through trauma, that it is common to lose memories or not have memories in the, the correct order, that that is a biological response of, of trauma instead of an indication of poor credibility. What are other issues that you'd like to see addressed around sexual assault in Washington state or even federally? The training of prosecutors and judges, like I already said, is incredibly important. Uh, I'm also really concerned about the coupling of uh, crime victims compensation with access to care. Uh, I was able to pay for my counseling with money from the crime victims compensation fund because I had filed a police report and that police report is necessary in order to access those funds. And I see this as a, a racial justice issue where black and brown victims are, are less likely to report to the police and that takes away one of the avenues to getting the, the health care and support that they need to, to recover. Can you tell me how this works with campus sexual assaults? Um, from what I understand, it's up to a college or university to report to the city or county in which the act happened, but they have the ultimate say-so in whether or not it's reported? That seems kind of strange. 
there's a lot of work still to do on the relationships between the jurisdictions and colleges. Um, there's also a lot of work to do at K-12 schools. I've been organizing with high school students who are devastated by the way that the individual schools and school districts are handling sexual assault allegations on campus. Most of the, the policies of the schools are to follow the lead of the police. So if the, the police choose not to file charges or if the police don't turn it over to the prosecutor to file charges or the police uh, don't investigate, then the school doesn't follow through either. The problem with that is that the police usually don't do a thorough investigation and the prosecutors rarely uh, file charges in these cases. So we definitely have work to do to create safety plans in schools and be more proactive for students uh, who are maybe able to, to meet a lower threshold of proof than conviction, but high enough to get them a safety plan and maybe a protection order. UNLV actually had a serial rapist that they just basically weren't talking about. I mean, I can totally see how a university's best interest would be served by not reporting this stuff. So to me, the university's having any kind of jurisdiction seems problematic which really is just more roadblocks to reporting sexual assaults that happen. Well, Leah, we really want to thank you for being on the show. We've really enjoyed watching all the work that you've been doing and changing legislation around very important topics. And we just want to say thank you, and we hope that you win your race. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been knocking doors on my campaign. Uh, what I hear at the doors is a lot of despair. People feel defeated. People feel helpless. They feel like they can't do anything. And part of why I'm running is to say, you can. Uh, this is what I've done with, with my time. And it's hard work, right? It's thousands of hours that I've put in. But I was able to make substantive change in our state so that what happened to me doesn't happen to, to anybody else in the future. That nobody else will ever have to beg the police to test their rape kits. Uh, so I'm really here to say we can do this. And I know that the only way that we do make change is for regular people to stand up and tell their stories. What an incredible human being. And talk about correlations to the Beaker trial, huh? The Beaker trial ended up being a fairly quick affair. After all his counsel's delays before this trial got started, the trial itself only lasted three days, with Beaker appearing on the stand on the third. Shortly after that, the case went to the jury, and after a very quick deliberation, they came back with a verdict. Which was guilty! Her father, who stayed calm and directive in his testimony and support, finally let out a clap of hands when the verdict was read, which was probably my favorite part. I wanted to clap with him. He regained composure quickly, but all I could think was, justice was actually served. I was wrong. There is a reason to be vigilant about reporting sexual assaults. The terror and stress of having to testify was overshadowed by the victory of that outcome, and my own belief structure changed. This was a very healing day for everyone. Yeah, I must admit, even this pessimist was moved. On the opposite side of the courtroom, Paul Beaker's second wife was in tears and very upset, which is understandable. 
The judge then ordered Beaker into custody, and the handcuffs were clapped on his wrist right in the courtroom. What an emotional high. The judge then stated that they would have sentencing on July 8th, 2022, and, and as part of that process, submissions were made to the court from both the defense and the prosecution. As you guys probably know, we keep it pretty loosey-goosey format-wise on the show. Yeah, to put it mildly. I gave Tracy a list of descriptive words. Respectful, caring, happy-go-lucky, everyone's friend, mild-mannered, laid-back, dedicated, and thoughtful. And would you say this accurately depicts Paul Beaker? I really don't know, but it doesn't sound like Mr. Cellophane. That's what I thought, too. These are just some of the descriptive words used to describe Paul Beaker in letters that were written to the judge concerning his sentencing. Yeah, basically when somebody is going up for t sentencing, both sides can submit letters supporting what they believe the sentence should be. And in this case, of course, there were a whole bunch of letters submitted by the defense trying to paint what a fine guy Paul Beaker is. We did that, but in the end, they were both so boring and yet enraging that we decided to spare you guys. And give you this audio summary instead. To start, sounds like Paul is a really good guy. Paul has always been a great husband, father, and citizen of his community. It is because of his small town upbringing and morals instilled in him by his parents that he is so willing to help others. I have never seen Paul lose his temper. He has always seemed to find another approach to resolve situations. I could not imagine Paul being capable of this crime. I have never seen Paul aggressive or violent, maybe a little grumpy or worried. Right? We also learned from the letters that Paul is quite a good worker. Uh, one of his supporters seemed a little confused about the homework and was writing a letter of recommendation for a job rather than leniency. Paul is incredibly good at the work he does, recognizing issues early on so that they can be addressed without costly delays. And finally, everyone agrees who the biggest victims in this case are. Paul's incarceration has a severe emotional impact on everyone that knows and loves Paul. Paul's children have been most affected by this. He had to coordinate with his ex-wife to help cover their daughter's car insurance, health insurance, and both their kids' phones. Oh, well, Jesus Christ. I mean, if, I, if those kids don't get their cell phones, y'all call the fucking governor. As you can tell from some of Kelly's reactions, some of these letters were a bit hard to take. And um, we found some of her responses to what she was reading so funny that we included a few of them here for you now. I mean, it hardly makes sense, guys. I'm just reading what she wrote, though, seriously. I gotta say, this woman's off her rocker. I teased him about getting chickens, goats, and rabbits, sometimes too much. I mean, I could read it with, like, so many different inflections. I just tried not to, but I'm just saying. It's like, is she crazy? Each letter had exactly one sentence of sympathy for the victim, and even though many of them still disputed the facts of the case. Yeah, I don't think that some of these people understood that you don't get to relitigate the case in these letters, but, you know, whatever. Although this probably wasn't the intention of the letter writers, they did reveal more info about Mr. Cellophane that we can share here. 
Probably one of the more interesting factoids that came out both in Beaker's testimony and some of the letters is that both he and his wife Shannon did search and rescue work. In case you're wondering why this is relevant, well, some killers like to get involved in searches. It gives them a buzz. But, and possibly more importantly in this case, it means that Paul is likely more aware than most anybody of all the areas out there where one might stash a body. Another way Paul might have learned about places to dump a body was on the many camping trips he apparently took all over Washington State with his family. And finally, we learned that Paul still has a post office box in McCleary, in addition to his other P.O. boxes, and that he frequently traveled long distances for work. Yeah, we'd really like to thank these Paul Beaker character witnesses for bringing this and more to our attention. We're compiling a much more detailed timeline of Beaker's life thanks to their effort. Yeah, despite their best efforts... The judge really brought the bar down on Beaker. To recap, Paul Beaker's earliest release date is August 23, 2048. The defense asked for a standard range of 93 to 123 months, and the prosecutor, Jason Walker, asked for 240 months, but 20 years, which Judge Mustachkin replied, also inadequate. Mustachkin was quoted as saying, this is probably one of the most heinous rapes I've encountered. And let's not forget, I've encountered a lot of rape cases, I've defended more rape cases as a defense attorney than anybody in this county. The facts of this case are just egregious. The jury found Beaker engaged in deliberate cruelty. This permits the court to potentially sentence Beaker to life. There are a number of factors that justify the imposition of an exceptional sentence. Honestly floored when I heard that verdict. I did not think he was going to get anything close to that, but I was very, very happy. Yeah, this is a sentence Beaker absolutely deserves. But what we really don't want to have happen is that the Lindsay Baum case loses steam because someone who might be her killer is in prison. Yeah, and that would be an easy out for authorities and frankly, no justice for Lindsay or Melissa Baum at all. There continues to be developments in the case and also in that of Paul Beaker, and we want to keep you guys informed of everything. In fact, one of the reasons we got held up on this episode is because there's just too much to tell you about. But we came to realize that, you know, having a lot of information is both a blessing and a curse. We don't want to just take any information at face value. We actually need to research it, see if it's valid, and then see how it fits into the case as a whole, which is basically a lot more time consuming than just, you know, putting out episodes, putting out episodes. And um, we were sort of finding ourselves getting caught up in that kind of process when we were like, we really just need to get the, inf- the episode about the trial out and now. So um, that's why we decided to drop this episode now. But we do have a lot more to say about Beaker and about Lindsay's case in specific. That being said, we do plan to continue our research into Lindsay and into Paul Beaker. But to give us some time to do that, we're going to declare an official hiatus. As opposed to the unofficial hiatuses we take all the time. Please keep hitting us up on the website and social media with your tips. We continue looking at those and find them extremely helpful. When we come back from our deep dive into Paul Beaker, there's so much more. And into the dangling threads of Lindsay, we plan to tell you about what we found. We also have a whole new case we want to look at with you. We thank you for listening. And for now, goodbye. Goodbye.